0: The application process was incredibly long and onerous. A lot of parents dropped out during it. When they wanted to hear back, it would take months for them to hear whether or not they were eligible. Customer service was not existent. There were data breaches on the platforms. There weren't a lot of vendors in the marketplace. And so after seeing that over in state after state, I realized
1: that I think there's a better way to do this. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Obviously the Future, The show that explores the massive trends that'll shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, the nonconformists, and the hidden experts who are building tomorrow, today. Who's joining us here today, Caitlin?
2: Today we have Joe Connor. He's the founder and CEO of Odyssey Education, an innovative technology platform that helps state governments enact ESA or education savings accounts and grant programs. But this is not Joe's first venture. Before that, he was a co-founder of a micro-school organization called Schoolhouse. And before that, Joe was a lawyer where he worked on education policy work and was a general counsel at a couple of companies like Old School. So Joe's a fascinating character and knows this space well. So we're talking to a true expert and pioneer.
1: Welcome to Obviously the Future, Joe. It's great to have you here. And I know we want to talk a lot about school choice, alternative education, but I want to start with your background as a teacher. You taught with two legendary organizations in the education space, KIPP and Rocketship Education. Uh, Can you tell me something about your time with each? Is something that stood out about those organizations, how they operate culturally, et cetera?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I spent a few years both at KIPP and Rocketship for those who aren't aware, National Network of charter schools nationwide now started in the 90s has really grown to to nearly 30 states. And I think the thing that I realized at KIPP was for education organizations, whether that's a school or a school district or an ed tech startup, how important the mission is. At KIPP, we were always 100% clear about what it is that we were trying to do there, which was make sure that kids had tools in the background that allowed them to apply, to go to college and to graduate from it. And that was really the focus and almost everything that we did from setting up the schedule, which had extended school time during the day and an extended school calendar. So there was an abbreviated school period for summer to what type of curriculum we did to the parent outreach was all really driven by that goal. So I think that was something that really resonated with me from my time at KIPP. And then after a few years, at Kip transferred to Rocketship. Was actually recruited by them, moved to the Bay Area, and Rocketship had actually come out of Kip in some ways. At the time, they were referring to themselves as Kip 2.0, a little bit of Kip plus kind of some technology layered on top of it. And I think the most important thing I realized from Rocketship was how important parental involvement is. So Kip had kind of, I think, pioneered what some good teachers and school districts had figured out, which was that parental involvement is key. There's a lot of studies that back that up. And then Rocketship had really taken it one step further. And a good example of that is I had about 66 kids across two classes that I was teaching. And it was an expectation for me and every other teacher at our school, Rocketship Mateo Sheedy, that we would actually go and visit the homes of every student. And so we did that on our own time, after school, on the weekends, whenever we could fit it in. And it really did lead to an incredible amount of parental engagement because once parents knew the teacher, they were familiar with them, it really just made difficult conversations and communication that much easier about the student. So both fantastic organizations still around today, still doing great work. And those are some of my takeaways from my time there.
2: Arvind and I actually invested in the African version
1: of Rocket Ship. So we're very familiar. with I That's that. the one in
0: South Africa, right? right? Yes.
1: And one thing, we spent some time with both Scott Hamilton, who's one of the founders of KIPP, and Preston, who's the founder of Rocketship. And what always has stood out to me from the outside is how both seem to be ready and willing to acknowledge where they're falling short. And it's really nice to see. It's not like a focus on your laurels or how you're beating the current system. I heard some story about KIPP, how they first, they were getting kids into college very successfully, but then the dropout rate was, was a little too high. And so then immediately just became a part of the mission and focus to say, okay, now it's not just getting them into college, but how do they graduate and how do we set them up in this phase? It's just, I really appreciate the, that, that sense of the relentless pursuit of more. And I think both organizations really reflect that. Yeah. KIP had a great, and I think they still do it,
0: annual report that comes out every year. And some of the things that we track are high school graduation, college matriculation, college graduation. And the early numbers on that, because I was there when they released them in partnership, I think, with Mathematica, were not at all impressive. I think they had maybe managed to double the rate of low-income kids going to college, but that wasn't really their goal, right? They wanted to increase it much further beyond that. And that transparency led them to do a lot of different things, which is they moved away from just the middle school model, which is what they had started as, to going into early education, to going into high school education, providing wraparound services. And yeah, I, I think Rocketship as well, the exemplars of just being really transparent with data. And I think especially in the education sector, usually that's not the case. People try to hide their yeah.
2: data. Do you have any stories from your time teaching that opened your eyes to the possibilities for alternative education, like very different models of
0: schooling? Yeah, I think Cape and Rocketship were both focused on low income urban communities who basically had been left behind by the local school district in many cases. And so I think what I saw there was that type of model, which at the time was referred to as No Excuses, worked well for probably a majority of those families who were there. But even then, Kip and Rocketship, and I'm sure the founders would admit this, didn't necessarily work for every single family. And so there were families that on an annual basis would have to go and find another option. Even though this had been a school of their choice, they had opted into it, applied and got accepted. And so I think that seeing that there were still people and families who needed something beyond what at the time was the only type of charter school, which was No Excuses, really opened up my eyes to the world of what later became known as micro schools, homeschooling co-ops, learning pods, because that No Excuses model was a very specific way to address the college graduation rate. And that's not necessarily what every parent wanted, right? Some parents wanted classical education. Some parents wanted like a whole child pedagogy. Some parents wanted like Montessori. And there weren't really a lot of those options available through public charter schools because what had happened was every state passed these laws and any charter school could open but what the regulars became very good at was analyzing and approving a certain type of charter school. And that was basically, is this a no excuse school? Is it an achievement first, uncommon success, KIP, et cetera. And there were all of these different models that geographically focused, but basically at their heart were the same thing, which is we will do whatever it takes to get a kid to and through college. And then other alternatives, right? If you want to open up a classical one, if you want to open Montessori, always had trouble both getting through the regulatory approval process, but also actually attracting funding because the KIPs and the successes were well-funded by prominent national philanthropic organizations. And those other ones failed by the wayside. And so one thing that I'm really excited about in our current work in the private school choice sector is that there have been, I think, just a huge variety of diversity of different options, right? You can see everything from, private micro schools, to Christian schools, to Jewish schools, Islamic schools, Montessori, Reggio Emilia, there's this wide variety. And that's something that's very different than I think the time i spent in the charter sector.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. There was one alternative and now that has created demand for many alternatives to even that alternative. As I've made the argument that alternative education is going mainstream and deeply believe that, the demand just keeps on going up. Do you have any stats or thoughts even about why now, like why is the demand from parents higher now than it's ever been? And what's the tipping point?
0: Yeah, there's lots of stats I can provide. I think one of the most jarring is here in New York City, where I'm located That New York City, DOE has lost roughly 12 percent of its school enrollment in the past five years. New York City is largest city in the country. It has the largest school system. So that's 120,000 kids who have went elsewhere. And there has been some research done by Stanford University that found that 14% of the kids who left between 2019 and 2020, this is now nationwide, went to private schools. Um, another 26% switched to homeschooling. Homeschooling, if you look at a chart of it, is increasing year over year. And I think a lot of it goes to that the COVID Situation prompted a lot of parents to rethink their children's ed- education and explore different options. For a lot of parents, it was by necessity. Right here in the Northeast, but now West, a lot of schools were closed no matter what, and so parents had to homeschool. They set up their own microschools or learning pods, and I think that was a tipping point for a lot of parents in terms of ownership of their education. Because coming out of the pandemic, what we saw, and one of the reasons that Odyssey has been able to really flourish in this environment is parents really want something that's different, right? Whether that's because the local school isn't considered safe or isn't meeting their needs, isn't challenging their student, isn't taking care of their special needs student. They really want something. And I think as a former educator and now a parent, I think it's really important that states provide this to families, that they actually have this option. And so I think increasingly that's why you're seeing new policies such as education savings accounts and microgrants and other school choice Mm -hmm. programs pass because parents realize that they do want something different and the states are responsive to that need.
2: And you help and just explain for people who don't know like what is odyssey, what's the idea behind an ESA or micro grants, why are they gaining momentum?
0: So micro grants and ESAs are both forms of direct funding for parents for education. A good analogy is an ESA or education savings account is similar to a health savings account. So a lot of people are familiar with that. Instead of in a HSA where a parent is putting away money for medical supplies, an ESA is actually the state taking the funding that's intended for the student, giving it directly to the parent, and then the parent can spend it as they choose. Each state program is run separately and differently. So that means that what Arkansas does for a program is different than Iowa, but at a kind of broad level, what it means is a parent can spend money on a private school. They can go hire a tutor with it. They can take online classes. They can buy notebooks and pencils. The idea really is that it's this pool of funds earmarked for the parent on an annual basis that they can use to pay for their son or daughter's K-12 through education. And I think that's something that's really exciting. It is a Fully wraparound pool of funds where it's not just going to pay for the tuition, but it's going to pay for any expenses outside of that. So if there's after school, if there's summer camp, if there are books that someone wants, all of that stuff can be paid for with BESA, which makes it in many ways a very fungible pool of money. And for the first time, is unlocking. Some of the state funding that in the U.S. has so long always gone to district schools. And so it's a really powerful way for the first time ever for parents to actually take the funds that they're entitled to by being a resident of the state and pay for what it is that they want. And I think it's interesting kind of being on a side where we are running these programs that you actually are seeing kind of what parents are voting on by spending their money. And so things like obviously private school tuition are very popular. We also see lots of things for behavioral therapy services. Oftentimes, and I know this is a former educator, it's very hard in a public school district to get an IEP or some type of document to identify that your son or daughter has a learning disability. And so one thing that we often see is people who opt into the ESA and one of the first purchases is going to a behavioral therapist, going to a speech therapist, going to something like that to get that diagnosis that they're going on. And so anyway, this is a idea predates the pandemic, but has been accelerated by it. Today, there's about 18 states that have some version of these programs, whether it's an education savings account or a microgram. The programs are complex. It involves a state being able to be good at about six different things. They have to be good at marketing and outreach, reach out to parents them know these programs exist. They have to be able to process applications. They have to be able to do identity verification to see who's eligible. They need to actually create the marketplace, they need to do payment processing, and they need to retain the data and have it in an auditable form. And so what states have found is that they typically can't do all six of those. And so that's where Odyssey comes in. So we're a company that we contract with states and we run the program from beginning to end. And I think one of the biggest differentiators of Odyssey from other players in this space is that we provide software. But we also actually staff the programs. And so the cost to the state is literally just the cost that they pay to us. There's no other additional or hidden fees on that. And we make sure that we limit any costs that are passed along to parents. And so we really try to be great partners to the states when we're running these programs. So that's
1: a quick overview of the sector, what Odyssey does. So how did you identify this as the pain point that you were positioned to solve?
0: So I think my background made me uniquely qualified for. It. We talked about it a little bit, but I've been a teacher and led a school. I started my own network of schools, actually. Also worked as an attorney in the education space. And increasingly what I saw was that parents wanted more and more choice and that parents were increasingly opting out of traditional schooling methods. And while I was running my own network of microschools, we were in 10 states and we started to try to access some of these ESA programs that were very early on at the time. And what I found was that there was a big disconnect between the policy as it was written and intended to be carried out and how it was actually implemented, which meant that when parents went to sign up for the programs, the application process was incredibly long and onerous. A lot of parents dropped out during it. When they wanted to hear back, it would take months for them to hear whether or not they were eligible. Customer service was not existent. There were data breaches on the platforms. there weren't a lot of vendors in the marketplace. And so after seeing that over in state after state, I realized that I think there's a better way to do this. And so started really for the first six months of the company, just by talking to parents and vendors and state administrators who ran these programs, learning what their pain points were. And then got together a small team to build the platform that we thought could solve a lot of these issues. And then we're successful
1: in our first state. And since then have grown to three states nationwide and are looking to grow more. Can I ask a naive question here? Mentioned the first of the six things is the marketing and outreach. When the states pass this, why do they care? Are they agnostic? What is the state's incentive to drive parents to this as an option?
0: Yeah. So I think this is a good point where there's a separation between the legislators who are advocating and pushing for these types of programs because they think it's the right thing for parents who are supporting it. And then during implementation where it usually gets put into some type of agency or state board, when there's a official or a handful of officials who are tasked with carrying it out, it's really important, like any program that parents are aware of these programs so that they do have options. And so we are most successful when we do have officials at the state level who really care about the fact that they want this program to be successful. They want it to enroll a large amount of students. And so usually that's when we get called in. And I think an early indicator of our success has been in Iowa, we launched just a couple of months ago and we had nearly 30,000 applications when they were only really predicting a handful of applications in the first year. They were they were, they were thinking that there'd be about 14,000 approvals. And when all was said and done, we blew past that by about 4,500. We were over 18,500 approvals. And one of the ways we were able to do that was marking an outreach to school groups, to private schools, Catholic dioceses parent groups in the days leading up to it. I actually personally ran, I think, 20 trainings for parents and everyone in the days leading up to it, making them aware of it, literally walking them through the platform from beginning to end so they weren't worried. They had all the information that they needed about it. And then we designed an application process that was as easy as possible. So the whole thing took about five minutes or less for a parent to sign up. The standard for a lot of these programs is they put the burden on the parent to prove That they belong in the program. And we always flip that on its head, which is we think that basically every parent is eligible and all we need to do is prove it. So what happened is that parents are able to apply for the program, get approved, and then we actually did real-time identity verification by utilizing access to a state database that we were able to gain in Iowa. So what that meant was that instead of parents finding out in 30 to 60 days whether or not they had been approved, parents found out in less than one second, typically. And so they were, as soon as they were able to submit the application, we were able to confirm whether or not they were a resident of that state and whether or not they met the income threshold that was relevant. And so that type of setup, which honestly in most other industries would be standard by now, really allowed us to grow the program pretty dramatically in the first year. And although I haven't confirmed this, I do believe it's probably the biggest ever first year launch of the program. Typically, it takes a program five to six years to get to those types of numbers. That's certainly what we saw in Arizona. So that's, I think, something that's really exciting. Yeah,
2: I think that's amazing. And it's just, it makes such a difference to the public when instead of being like, oh yeah, use this platform and two weeks later, you'll know whether you're approved. One second, that is that is unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And we're excited for it to become the standard nationwide. It's one of those things where... We really think that there is a space in ESAs for kind of a tech first vendor like ourselves. And that's what we're going on. So we've built this incredible identity verification feature. We also have a marketplace that has been built by people who have built well known e commerce platforms like Stitch Fix and Gilt. And so we really are trying to build a technology user experience that feels more
1: what people are used to with Amazon and less. Like going to the DM. Yep. Wait, so let me ask, you've mentioned a couple times the parent demand for choice. Yeah. How does this cut along political lines? So is this a red or a blue issue, both from a legislative standpoint, but also from a parent standpoint? Yeah. So from a parent
0: perspective, it surprises a lot of people that this is actually one of the few things that has bipartisan support. So independents, Republicans, and Democrats overwhelmingly support education savings accounts. Usually, it's actually the top form of school choice that they support all over vouchers, over tax credit scholarships, over charter schools. And so it's a very popular form of school choice. Now, politically, where people are currently aligned, it typically is a Republican conservative issue. But I think that is beginning to change. One of the key things on this and why I'm optimistic, I, I'll give you kind of I think three reasons. The first is that historically there's always been an appetite for school choice in the Democratic Party. Democrats for education reform and other prominent Democrats, including President Barack Obama, supported charter schools only 10, 15 years ago. Cory Booker was another prominent supporter of them. I think there's still an ability to be able to revive that coalition. Number two, there is the fact that for the first time in 40 years, education is actually no longer a trusted issue for Democrats. Voters now trust Republicans. And so I think that this is something that Democrats are increasingly becoming aware of, something that for a very long time, they were trusted, you know, domestic policy issues. And now I think the, it has kind of flipped. And I think there's been some resentment about what happened during COVID. I think there's questions about the accountability of all the federal funding that went to the states and the school districts. And so I think that there are some Democrats who are realizing that and reassessing their view on this. And then third, at the end of the day, it is a very politically popular program. And so even if there's a party that doesn't necessarily want to pass it, it's hard to really argue with poll after poll that comes out that does support that not only Republicans and independents like it, but that Democrats actually do like it.
2: I was going to say, and it's just clear that uh, parents are voting with their feet as well and willing to change states and move districts. That's become such a, such an important issue. We
0: talked about New York City DOE, right?
1: Yeah. Whether exactly. or not
0: they want to change or not, parents are
1: already changing what they want to do with their kids. If you were to have to steal, man the argument against education savings accounts, is there any principled stand about what the potential risks are or downsides? I think that like a lot of new policies,
0: there are unintended consequences of them. So I think that there's a reasonable question to be asked that as ESAs increase, what happens to students in public schools, right? If public schools are going to have to make cuts, the goal of ESAs is not necessarily to destroy public school districts. And I think any type of conversation about schools, including ESAs, needs to take into account that we need to support both school choice programs like ESAs as well as school districts. And I think that in a lot of places, as ESAs rise, that will be a perennial issue that comes up. I think Arizona and Florida have both shown, they have two of the longest programs running in the country, that there is room for both. And the really interesting thing I always try to remind people is that, Parents in their states aren't necessarily policy experts. So when they're picking a school, they're not saying, I want the ESA or I want the charter, I want the public district, I want the magnet." It's, St. Albert's or I want great hearts. It's they're picking the school for the reasons the parents traditionally pick it, which is that there's something about the curriculum. They appreciate the teachers. It's a nearby local school. It's safe. And so in those places, there's actually a full market where parents regularly, sometimes on an annual basis, are switching schools, doing what's right for one kid, maybe what's different for the second kid. And I think that's really exciting, but I think that's an issue. And then I think there's a lot of issues that come along with historically the federal government with, especially with disabilities and low-income students has played a role through the Title I programs, as well as IBEA. And students who are going into education savings accounts won't necessarily have access to those. I actually think that the solution for that is an interesting policy, which would actually allow those funds to be fungible. And actually, also follow them to the school of their choice, whether that's a homeschool or a private school.
2: Arvin and I, in our previous life, co-wrote a paper with Ross Lipstein, who was at Summit Schools for a long time, called "Seeing Beyond the Mirage," which we use as this analogy to explain to education ministers that the mirage is my job is to run the public education system, when really they should believe that their job is to ensure that every child has access to a high quality of Mm. education. And if you can change from that sort of input oriented mindset of just running the system to an outcome, you'd be able to see an oasis of blossoming in schools and kids having their needs met. I think your point about families that send different kids to different schools, maybe one goes to an art school, maybe the other is going to an athletic academy, is just a very clear example about how it's not so cut and dry, one size fits all anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting approach even in states where EFSAs have passed, because historically the agencies and boards tasked with overseeing them are used to a highly centralized, top-down approach. And even in states where there's a lot of support for this, officials in the state government, as they get used to the idea that the parent actually gets to pick exactly where they go to school with their funds, and then they get to pick if they have money left over after they can go over here and they can buy behavioral therapy session. And so- It is actually an interesting thing where when these programs are passed, they're not turned on overnight. And there's certainly an implementation and an adjustment period for a lot of these programs.
1: Yeah. And speaking of the outcome or the results, what outcomes do you actually get for students? Are there efforts as people scatter around these various options from homeschooling to micro schools to behavioral therapy, How, what bang for your buck you're eventually getting?
0: There, it's still, I'd say, early days for a lot of these programs, but for some private school choice programs, there have been some studies done that do show demonstrated significant academic progress for students who opted into these programs. There's certainly, I think, a lot more that can be done in that area. And one of the benefits of having kind of the federal system we do is that each state gets to take their own approach to the ESA. Some states that are mandating that there are either have standardized tests or some portfolio of work. I think that's probably a expanding area for this as we move through now there's 18 programs. We have about majority of those that are implemented and we'll start getting the results back in the next few years. I think there's a huge need for academics and think tanks to really dive into the results and see hey this was the policy and what are the intended outcomes. I can say like the stories that we hear every day in Iowa are incredible because these really are life-changing programs. Someone from a a rural school in Iowa called me the other day to tell me there had been this local family who had called year after year to check on the local tuition at their Catholic school to see if they could afford it. And every year they were told what the price was and they couldn't afford it. And so they had to continue to go to a school that wasn't really meeting their needs. And this year for the first time, when they found out that they were accepted, they called the school in tears because they were so happy. And it really was to give them a choice where before they didn't have that. So I think that at the end of the day, a lot of the success of these programs will certainly be judged by academic proficiency and other markers. But I think it's also important just to remember that at the heart of it, there is a moral argument to be made that parents do have a right to educate their kids how they want. And giving parents that choice and that power in the form of dollars is really powerful.
1: Yeah. Speaking of morality, you're a platform kind of showing yeah. the options that people have available to them and as to how to use these funds. And if there's anything I've learned from big tech, it's the power of these platforms to subtly influence your decisions. How do you view your ethical obligation as a platform in terms of showing people the options, but also the little decisions you make about where one option is relative to another on the website or how things are positioned? What's the ethical framework that you use to guide your decisions there?
0: Yeah. So first and foremost, the primary one is each state, usually at the Department of Education or Board of Education, actually sets these are the rules for the marketplace, right? And so the very first thing we do during implementation is we're essentially inserting those rules into our software platform and making sure that approved products and services show up and ineligible ones don't. So that's the first thing I think constraint for the marketplace. After that, we're really focused on making sure that parents have as much information as possible to make a good decision. And so increasingly, we have been adding to the information that parents have access to. Some of the feedback we got in our first state in Idaho was there was a preference to be able to shop at local Idaho small businesses. So one of the things that we actually added to Idaho specifically was essentially just like a little button that said, this is an Idahoan business. It was a little bit more work for us, but it was something that gave the parents more information. It was something that we had listened to with feedback. And I think three, where we're trying to move is in addition to providing information, we really want to provide a ratings and review system. And so one thing that we're looking at and we'll work closely with our state that we're implementing it to decide whether it's right for them or not, is being able to kind of surface, hey, you're buying services from this behavioral therapist." Someone bought last month from them. This is their rating and review. It's anonymized, obviously, to protect PII. But I think we want to get to a place where we have a robust marketplace that not only has lots of options, but actually has lots of information for parents to make informed choices. Having been an tech founder twice now, one of the things that always, I think, still surprises me is how little information in education is consumed broadly across the area in terms of what's the best programs. Oftentimes when I ask people, hey, how'd you decide on that school? How'd you decide on that after-school program? It's usually my brother, my sister, my parents, right? People still rely on this group of friends and families and acquaintances drive their decisions often. And so one thing that we're really trying to do at Odyssey is to take all of that information that's usually siloed and, text message groups or WhatsApp groups and actually share it across the platform. And this really came about, obviously, because in other sectors we have that, but parents have actually found their workarounds for a lack of information for ESAs. A great example is Arizona that has one of the longest running ESAs. There has been, since the program started, probably not enough information shared about all of the vendors in that state. And so one thing the parents have done is actually create their own Facebook groups and share information about, hey, you're looking for someone in South Phoenix, right? Here's a great tuner. You're looking for a music school in Scottsdale. Here's a great option for that. And so parents will regularly come. They'll post a question. Someone will post a response. And that's how they're solving this current dearth of information. But that's honestly something that software is much better equipped to do. That's a highly manual, kind of highly chance driven process. And so what we want to do is essentially, if someone's already posting about this was a great service or, hey, be careful about this service. We want to actually get that into a ratings or review system.
1: So that's something that our engineering team is looking at on their roadmap. Got it. Given your specific background, working at no excuses, charter schools, being involved with micro schools, founding a micro school group, now with the bird's eye view for all these different options within alternative education. I think every parent listening, including myself, wants to know, what do you think? about what you're looking for. I know you have a young one now, you got time left yeah, to, to kind of figure yeah. out your options. What's top of mind for you in terms of what you'd like to get out of that educational experience? Yeah, I think there's kind of two lens I approach it from. I think my own personal
0: experience with education. I had great schools and great teachers that I was lucky enough to attend. My parents opted to put me into uh, Catholic school and elementary and middle school. And I had a great experience there. And then I went to an independent private school for high school in Philadelphia and really enjoyed both of those. And so I think that certainly influences it. And then I think on top of that, part of what I get to see every day is some of the coolest and newest ideas that are out there. And some aren't even new, they're just reiterations of that. Classical education is very popular again. So what I'm looking at is I think what a lot of people want, which is a community where parents and teachers work together, that has a very clear ethos and mission. I really do think that there is something to the Montessori method at a young age. I have friends with a lot of the founding team from Higher Ground Education, which is one of the largest Montessori networks in the world. And I think over the years, they've prevailed upon me, that there's something there. So I really like that approach, but I think at its heart, a lot of it is figuring out what you think would do well for your son or daughter, and then trying to match it in some ways with what you value as a parent and as a family. And so it's hard to give always an equation for that, but that's what I approach it with, which is just what have I learned about and seen in kind of my professional career? And then personally, what do I think makes a really good education?
2: And this is a question we ask everyone in a segment on the pod called Hot Takes. So this is called obviously the future. And we talk to visionaries like you who are not not just describing future trends, but building it. What are some things that you see that are obviously the future that'll be dramatically different in the next decade that you think most people don't see?
0: Yes, I think there's been a massive explosion in alternative education models that will continue to increase for the next five to 10 years. So I anticipate seeing increases in the new sector of micro schools and learning pods. I think charter schools and private schools will continue to increase. I think the second thing, and this is related to that, is that there will be massive decreases in enrollment for public schools. You're already seeing that almost every major urban school district right now is losing enrollment year over year. Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City, even Austin Independent School District, which I actually think is one of the most interesting. Austin's kind of known as a boom town in terms of the population increasing. But AISD has actually decreased year over year. So there's clearly something that's happening that's not just demographic driven in some cities like New York. It is in part driven by demographics, but I think also, as we've talked about, parents are definitely voting with their feet. They're choosing alternatives. I think along with that, there's going to be the risk of the public schools getting much worse before they get better. A lot of these enrollment decreases have happened without budget cuts. And the reason for that is the federal government injected a massive amount of money into school districts nationwide during COVID. And also several states implemented what are known as hold harmless provisions so that school districts weren't necessarily penalized for people who had left the last couple of years. The hold harmless provisions are going away and the federal government funding is stopping. And so what that means is that these school districts are now faced with a fiscal cliff. And so they're going to have to cut. Teachers, classes are gonna increase, they're gonna have to close schools. And in a environment in which parents are already leaving schools that are fully funded and have more money than they ever had, as those cuts start to take hold, I think more and more parents are actually going to leave. And so I think it's going to get much worse in terms of public school enrollment before it gets any better. I think one of the reasons we founded Odyssey is another hot take, which is that increasingly states are passing school choice policies. 2021 was called the year of school choice until 2022, where they passed even more. And then this past year, they passed even more than the last two years. There really is, I think, a movement here that has lagged behind where their parents were, honestly. Parents wanted parent choice probably three years ago, as soon as the pandemic hit, but like a lot of things education policies lagging indicator. And so it took politicians and people a little bit to catch up. And then I think that a lot of these trends are driven by the fact that, and we talked about this earlier, but that for the first time in 40 years, what historically has been a, a democratic advantage on education has switched. And now a lot of polls seem to confirm that Republicans are more trusted on education. I think there's reasons you can debate why that is. But I think what that means really for education for the next five to ten years is that increasingly what the Republican Party decides is important in K-12 education will be where the country is headed. And so I think that means certainly more school choice programs pass. I think also there will be more things like parental rights bills and curriculum transparency bills, because that also seems to be a focus for Republicans. Those are a few intersecting things, but that's something that I think about a lot.
2: One follow-up on that is do you think that this goes global?
0: I, I do. I think that one, the US is often a exemplar for many trends around the world, even in education, although we're not necessarily the highest scoring internationally. I think the charter school movement affected numerous countries around the world, right? We talked about the effect just on South Africa with that one network, but those types of schools were imported to many other countries. They were called different things, but it was highly influential. The idea of taking what was a top-down bureaucratic approach, decentralized it, allowing nonprofits and more freedom to run schools was very attractive. And yes, I do think that increasingly these types of policies will show up overseas, if only because I think really the time has come, right? There's, I don't think anyone pre-COVID was a hundred percent happy with the way the school system was run. And I think also technology is a huge increase in that, right? Our marketplace lives on the internet. There's not a world in which you can do this manually or in person. And so I think that also will affect this as people get very used to that level of choice. In other sectors,
1: I think they're going to demand it in education. Nice. This is the first episode I think we've recorded that has not yet had the word AI in it. Let me just ask you real quick, any hot take on AI in education, personalized tutors? Do you think you could be replaced by a GPT-5 in a Khan Academy form factor? Yeah, my hot take on AI might be disappointing to the audience. Most skeptic, I think,
0: until proven otherwise. And that's just because I think you two might agree with me on this. There have been a lot of promises over the last 10, 15 years about personalized learning and software that haven't really come to fruition. Flipped classrooms, hybrid classrooms, learn the principal at home, and then you come in and you do the work with the teacher, guide by the side. And a lot of those did not work out for one reason or the other. It seems with artificial intelligence, we might be at a tipping point. But I think the hard thing, like a lot of technology with education, is how does it actually get implemented? I'm probably beating myself for some of the audience, but I remember when like laser discs were a big thing when I was growing up. They were going to revolutionize education. Everyone would have a laser disc. You could put it in and it would teach everyone everything. Cable was supposed to revolutionize education. Best artificial intelligence, in my mind, will probably not come from someone who is completely outside the education model. I think it will come from someone who actually has a lot of experience working with kids. I don't think that necessarily has to be a school or a school district, but I think in terms of making artificial intelligence useful and helpful for teachers, parents, and students, You actually need to understand what some of those needs and wants of those people are. And so I think that it'll be really interesting to see which companies are able to do that. But yeah, I guess
1: consider me a skeptic until proven otherwise. Okay. So last question. Caitlin has this list titled My Younger Self, and it includes a bunch of timeless books that she would recommend to her younger self to read. So in the spirit of that list, we've been asking all our guests, can you give us one book? That you'd want to share with your younger self and tell us why?
0: Yeah, maybe an odd choice, but this book, it's called Crooked Cucumber by Shunryu Suzuki, who was one of kind of the first Japanese Zen masters to come to the United States. He came in the post war years, landed in San Francisco, and started what is the modern Zen Buddhist tradition in America, first in San Francisco, and then a lot of his students went on to found them nationwide. And I think the most Interesting part of it for me has been as someone who was raised in a faith tradition completely different than that, how useful a lot of the book is just for daily living. There's this focus that he brings is honestly at odds with kind of Buddhism in Asia, but has this very American practical focus on really just focusing on your breath and meditation. And so it's just been this book that throughout my life, I've always been very interested because it was this small, uh, young Japanese Buddhist teacher who spoke almost no English who came to America and just had this kind of incredible effect, by like focusing on this one particular thing, which is that at the heart of Zen Buddhism was this idea of sitting meditation, focusing on your breath, and just had this profound influence. And so the book is very well written, and it's very interesting and engaging. It's a book that I read probably first when I was at college and probably
1: wish I read when I was younger. Awesome. And what a title too. Crooked Cucumber. Yeah, exactly. That literally, just taken out of context, that could be a children's <laughs> book. That could be all sorts sure. of things. That could be in any category of the bookstore. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything you want to plug, any place people can find you? On Twitter, at Joseph J. Connor.
0: And then feel free to check out our website, www.withodyssey.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. We really appreciate it having you. Thanks for coming on.